Hey guys, it's Paul from the Atypical Rainbow. This is a content warning. Uh, you are about to hear the second episode uh, in the series Atypical Philosophy talking about death. Um, while we don't talk about anything graphic, sometimes the topic itself can be triggering. If it is, we encourage you to seek your local medical professional uh, or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy the episode. And I'm Grant. And this is the second episode in our little mini-series of Atypical Philosophy, Death, Part 2. Wait, I said that too cheerily. Death, Part 2. Anyway, so we, we're, uh, this is a follow-on from the earlier episode. If you haven't listened to it already, please check it out. Just because it all kind of fits in nicely. You know, it doesn't mean you need to know everything that happened in the first podcast, but you know, it's, it's useful to get a bit of context. But we're, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about family. And, and um and death yeah so this idea i was thinking about kind of is a jump off from death because i was kind of thinking about like at the start of your life your family is the main thing like you're born into a family and generally you stay in that family for a large amount of time there are people who immediately lose their family through like abandonment or adoption or something Mm. But most of the time, you'll be in your family during your youth. That'll sort of be the centre of your world. But then that doesn't always... They don't always remain the centre of your world. Like, it's not something that necessarily goes all the way through life to your death. Like, by the time you reach your death, you might not actually be that involved with your family. For many reasons. And it's quite common in sort of families where a child was gay... Especially more in the past. It's better in the Western world now, but I believe that there are some parts of the world where there's still some issues where you've grown up in a family and then they discover that you're gay and you are sent out of that family, like you're thrown out of the family or excluded from the family. Especially if you belong to a religion that believes that any ex-practitioner of the religion should not be spoken to. Mm. So if you come out as gay in a religion that says you can't be gay, then your parents may stop talking to you because their religion has told them that you being a gay person can't be part of the religion and no one who is not part of the religion can be talked to and socialized with. Mm. So it's something that may, I was just thinking about that like with this death there was some estrangement around it. There was people who, up until she was quite unwell, hadn't seen her for multiple years because of estrangement issues. So, does death reverse all that? Like, has your, does your family have the right to sort of come in and go, well, you were born into the family, you have chosen to exclude yourself from the family, or our behavior has excluded you from the family, but now that you are dying or dead, then you still belong to us in some way. And I feel like there's a lot of movies and TV shows I've seen because I didn't live through it that depicted sort of the, during the AIDS epidemic, 
gay people getting AIDS and then the, the, sort of their family taking them back from their found family mm. and especially their partner and sort of go, okay, you are dying. Now you're coming back and being part of our family because you're going to die as you were born within our family. And that doesn't include the person you've chosen to be your family or the people and your community. Yeah, I mean, I've I've felt for a long time now that family is a bit of an artifice. I find that, and that, that that's a big statement, but I think that being blood related to someone does not necessarily make your connection any deeper. I mean, sure, you know, if you grow up with someone, your experiences might be shared, but ultimately, I think that the people that you should be surrounding yourself with are the people who love and care for you in the way that you would expect a family to. And so I think, I'll, I'll, you know, the, the term found family, I, I've, I think I've heard that before, but I like it. I like the idea that you create this family for yourself, but it is, it is quite common amongst many cultures, I believe, where for some reason blood relations trump everything else, which to me doesn't really make any sense. It's another one of these, uh, you know, historical obligations. I'm like, well, why? Why are we still doing this? And I think there is a challenge there in reconciling those kind of what I think are archaic distinctions versus what your beliefs are. So in the example of your cousin, as you said, she was estranged from the family for various reasons, and it was her wish that only her husband give a eulogy and no one else was allowed to. And that's her right. I mean, that's she, she gets to choose the way that her funeral is held. But at the same time, funerals really are for the living. So at what point do we kind of say, yeah, exactly, you know, is, yes, she, she might have chosen that, but... Does that mean that the people who she might have been estranged from but care about the loss, does that mean they have to be separated from it all? That they have to be restricted? And that's a really hard challenge because, again, your cousin isn't around to to police this. Um, The people who care about her are, and that's their right to respect her wishes. But, again, the grief process isn't really about the person who's passed. It's the person, people who are left behind. Yeah. And I guess it becomes sort of this who's hurt trumps who's hurt. Yeah. Because if it's going to cause pain to certain people for the deceased's wishes to be ignored, but it's going to hurt other people to have the deceased's wishes acknowledged and followed, then it kind of becomes this contest between two people who neither one is the deceased and is not their funeral. Yeah. My frame of reference is uh, the field of disability, right? And, and not talking about death specifically, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So, in the field of disability, when someone uh, lacks the ability to give consent to something, say a medical procedure or the start of, of some sort of medication, the expectation is that it defaults to the next person. Now, there's a hierarchy in Victoria of that person. You don't need to know the details. But the point is, is that someone else gets to make that decision. But the expectation is that that person is making the decision on the the person with the disability's behalf. Not that they're making the decision for them in this sort of paternalistic, I know better kind of way, but more in a, what would you do? Like, what what, what do I think you would do if these were the circumstances? And that's a really challenging thing uh, to try and kind of conceptualize because, you know, if the person, say, doesn't have uh, verbal communication or they don't have a way of uh, understanding their emotions or whatever, whatever impairment might be, that uh, prevents them from uh, expressing the complexity of their their understanding of a situation. It's a lot of guesswork, right? And you have to kind of make the decision. 
So as that for that from that as a jumping off point for me, I think that ultimately you do have to respect the individual. They may not be around to monitor you, but that's not really the point. If you actually cared about them, if you actually respected their opinions and their feelings, you should respect what they what they wanted, no matter how much it hurts you, because it's not about you. Now, don't get me wrong, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be hurt. Like you mm. are also entitled to your feelings. But ultimately the decision is about the individual about the deceased in this situation. That's where I kind of see that. And look, that's a little bit black and white, but hey, autism. But I think sometimes they're just, it's useful to just have that kind of clarity because ultimately no one's ever going to be satisfied with the outcome. You know, like the people who are trying to defend the the deceased will not be happy if, if the other people will get to speak and vice versa. Like it just, no one's going to be particularly satisfied by it. So rather than everyone trying to control the singular situation, you know, that's, as I said in the kind of last episode, can't we just kind of grieve in our own way? Like, do we all have to follow the funeral rules or can we just find a different way of doing things? Yeah, I think I come down in a very similar position to you, that I think respecting what you know of the deceased wishes is probably necessary, even though it is for the living. But I guess the problem is we can't all grieve in our own way if our grief is mutually exclusive to someone else's grief. What do you mean? Like with the speaking versus not speaking. Yeah. Like one person's grief involves... someone not speaking and someone's grief involves them speaking like those things cannot exist at the same time so someone is not free to grieve in their own way but that's also assuming that it has to be the one event this this is what i'm saying i think yeah but i think like i i did think on that line but i was like okay well once you cremate the body the body's cremated (laughs) you can't just have a alternative funeral yeah. Where you just like recremate the ashes or something. Yes. But at the same time, why is the viewing of the body essential? Like, I think there's there has to be a degree of adaptation. If 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 we were gonna try and find a solution to this, which there won't be a solution, I mean let's be real, right? But if we're using that as an uh, that as the starting point, the idea that, you know, what do we do with the body if both people want to be able to see the body, then like I think there are ways to figure that out, whether it's about having, you know, an extended funeral or having viewing times or not even just have not even having a ceremony. Mm. Like just allowing people to do what they feel is most comfortable to them or helps them to process the grief the best way possible. Like to adhere to the kind of typical idea of this funeral lasts for exactly one hour. In this one hour we do whatever it is, last rites or eulogies yeah. or whatever. I think it's about throwing that book out and saying, well what is the way we want to do this so that everyone can kind of have their process. Yeah, but it it is hard if people's processes are, like, traditional um, religious ceremonies. Also true. Which, I guess, winds back to the idea of, of, you know, someone who's been ostracised from the family and and the family reclaimed them. Yeah. You know, part of the problem there is, again, it falls back on that really archaic belief that family trumps all. Yeah. And if the individual doesn't want the family to be involved, is it fair that the family get to claim them by, I don't know, legality or culture or whatever, when their found family are the ones who might have supported the person through the hard times, who want to brought them the most joy i think sometimes we have to let go of the rules and the expectations if we truly if if the the goal is truly care about the individual so one of the things with my cousin was she talked about fake people calling her 
And mm. it, that was her term. Presumably it wasn't telling marketers. Yeah. <laughs> what she was talking about was people who didn't care about her when she wasn't dying. Mm. Suddenly caring about her because she was dying. Like calling her because she was dying. Um, and this is actually something I talked to my psychologist about. And my psychologist was talking about the fact that you kind of have to see it sometimes from the person who's dying's point of view. Because if you if you have really bad cancer and you're dying, you might be exhausted. Mm. And it's not the person who is dying's job to have 17 guests per day yes. come to their house. Like, you have to go, okay, I'd love to go visit you because you're dying and this might be my last chance. But... If you're dying of cancer, you're probably too tired. Mm. I'm going to be putting an obligation on you that's not fair. So I kind of had to work out my own way of finding the middle ground for myself, Mm. which ended up being I sent a Facebook message because Facebook is a way that we had communicated. I basically just wrote the Facebook message, said everything I wanted to say and sent it off. And I was like, okay, I may not get a reply. Like, I don't know how busy she is because she is palliative, but I'm not going to force her under the obligation of me visiting her. Mm. I'm just going to say what I want to say. Hopefully it gets to her. All she needs to do is kind of, if she receives it, that's good. If she replies, that's better. But I don't want to put an obligation on her. Mm. I just want to, you know, just say what I want to say because she meant something to me. And I wanted to express to her how much her support for me, in this case, my when we when I came out and also when you came on the scene, I just wanted to express to her that that, which might have seemed like a little thing or a natural thing to her, was a big thing to me. Mm. And that kind of defined my relationship with her and defined my memory of her, even if, as we spoke in the previous episode... I didn't see eye to eye with her about how she spent the last couple of years of her life fighting against what I thought was good medical practice. Mm. Her support, solicited or unsolicited, because I think, you know, I, 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 I think she suggested I bring you around. So it was probably completely unsolicited support the entire time. Mm. But I know when there was the postal vote, she just messaged me. <laughs> like it wasn't... Like, maybe she saw on Facebook that I was struggling, because I did post some things about the fact I was struggling. Mm. So maybe it was a reaction to something I posted. But she just sent me a message saying, it sucks that this is happening. You know, you have my support. Mm. And that, for me, will always be how my relationship with her is defined. Yeah. Like, it. yeah, I wish there wasn't sort of this weird extra thing. But then, I guess... Well, like one of the things that it compares to, but it's not the same thing, is that one of my final memories of my grandfather was, unfortunately, he was very, very sick, and he'd soiled himself. Mm. And that... I'm kind of sad that's one of my final memories of him. Mm. Because it's not the way I want to remember him. Mm. And it wasn't the man that I'd known. It was just a man who was dying. Yeah. Um, And it was just unfortunate. So, yeah, obviously... You know, there's different degrees of control over the things. Mm. Um, But, yeah, sometimes you do get left with a final impression that isn't what you want it to be. But I'm trying to make sure I look 
to all the stuff before that and not letting the final stuff, even though it was unpleasant um, in my cousin's situation, tarnish what my relationship with her was. Yeah, I mean, look, we can we can talk about the complexities of the mind till the till the end of time, but I mean, in this situation, this is one of those things where I think people forget that your brain actually works without you trying to, to work, make it work. Yeah, and so the memories are going to come no matter how hard you try. And I think a lot of people where they make the mistake is that they kind of go, well, I want to be able to control my memories. That's, that just doesn't happen. Yeah. But what you can do is what you're doing, which is when the memory comes, when the thought comes, you just respond to it differently. Yeah. You find a way to bring the focus back. And eventually, like a lot of things you practice, uh, the things you get good at, it becomes more natural and you stop having to think about it. Mm-hmm. But certainly early on, fighting your mind and fighting your memories is a, is a futile task. Yeah, you're you're better off. Yeah, trying to just remember the good things, and I, I I agree. I think that's how you. I think the way you're approaching it, is, I think, is really positive. Mm. I, I think I think the 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 family drama that we're sort of vaguely referring to, but not going into details about, did make things really complicated. And I empathise for her family because as as they they did to some degree reconcile towards the end, which was, yeah. which was I think positive for for a lot of people, but ultimately your cousin's wishes were still quite. Um, uh, rigid, let's mm-hmm. say, um, and and a, a rigidity she was more than entitled to, but it it, it created tension. I think I think it just yeah it, it made things difficult. But I think what you pointed out was really interesting, which is that you found your own way of dealing with it. So you took the restrictions laid before you. Not that you were the one of one of the people she was ostracizing, but yeah, um, you kind of respected her desire not to be bombarded by fake well wishes. Yes, and you found your own way of doing it. And she responded, and she responded positively, and she was you know it was nice. Yeah. So I think I think that's what it is. Sometimes we just kind of have to remember the individual and find and ma- not make it their problem. So mm. I think there could have been every possibility that the estranged part of your family could have fought and scratched and cried and yelled um, because they wanted to grieve their way and they wanted everyone to grieve in the same way. Yeah. But I think th- ultimately it was fine. They, there was no, there was no animosity there in that spe- respect. But yeah, I think that, for, for if if we take the broad the vaguer example of a family reclaiming a gay person after they've died, even though they weren't there for them at all, I think in that situation that they need to kind of just respect the individual and let go of their own beliefs and find their own way of doing things the, the way that makes them feel better for it. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the the death conversation. So in the last episode, you know, you talked about how you felt you could be a good funeral director, which I, I agree mm-hmm. with. For anyone who has listened to the Judith Lucy, Lucy podcast, Overwhelmed and Dying, or read the book, Turns Out I'm Fine, which they're basically the same thing. Yeah. The She talks about death walkers. And so it's, it's sort of this idea. So if you have a doula and, or a midwife for birth, you have someone who kind of walks you through death. And it's mm-hmm. about having honest conversations about death and what you want and what your beliefs are and, and all that. I think that's a really interesting aspect because I, have you talked to your parents about death and about their funerals and what they would want? Yeah, I have because I'm kind of in the position of being the executor of wills and I'm kind of like that person. Mm. Like I will probably end up being like medical executor and stuff just because of geography. Like, I am the only one who is in the state. So, for this funeral, I was the only one who could cross the borders, I think. Yeah. 
to actually be at this funeral. So, yeah, so, I've, I, so every now and then I will think of a question I haven't thought of before and I will call them and I'll ask them. Okay. So I think, and I think I also did the same thing with you where I asked you, is there anyone you don't want to talk at your funeral? And you said, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Which is fair enough, but I thought I'd check. No, it, it's good because I'm, I'm trying to think now, would I answer differently? I don't think I would. I, I, I remember, I do know that, you know, I've said to you before, I want my funeral to be a party with lots of colour because I'm all about the colour. Yes, whereas you get very sarcastic answers from me, so good luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I, and and but even then though you 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 point you've pointed out to me that and which is what I said earlier in this episode is that the funerals for the living so yeah. if people do want to dress up in black and start crying well it shouldn't be necessarily be my decision to force people to dress in rainbow colors and dance the Spice Girls at my funeral yes but uh, you want them to feel welcome to do so yeah and not judged yes exactly yeah. exactly I think so there's this um, show that I love that's recently been on uh, Binge slash HBO Max for people in America called Hacks and they they took a really interesting perspective on uh, a funeral where the so it's it's about this fading comedian who's trying to sort of find her way through a career and she hires a young writer to try and um, support her. It's not quite that. Yeah, yeah, but I but um, there is a funeral where everyone is quiet and sad and no one to do. The comedian gets up and just starts getting everyone to, everyone start talking about the person who's deceased, but in like this like these fond memories, these funny kind of ways. And so it a bit was, more twenty first speech and less eulogy. Yeah, so there. Was there was a levity to it without it being mockery. Mm-hmm. There were, and it wasn't like a celebration of death, but it was just fond nostalgia. Yeah, and I think that's what it is. You know, the the funerals that I remember, and again, the first one being my dad's. It's all very somber and very process like, and everyone's expected to be sad. And you know, I I I cried at the weirdest times after my dad died. Like just not times that people would think I would cry. And, but I, because I was, you know, the, the oldest son of the oldest son of my dad's side of the family, I felt like I was being watched all the time and I had to react in a certain way. And I, I don't want people feeling like that at my funeral. If people want to say a joke or make some Simpsons quotes or something, I would much rather that than everyone think, oh God, I have to say something really emotional and touching and some way in which Paul changed my life. Like, I don't... That that doesn't feel like me. Like mm-hmm. the the kind of relationships I have with people are far more like you know mocking. You know, yeah. Like um, I I have a friend who we we call each other names all the time. We're in our mid thirties and we call each other fat and ugly. And it's it's you also like, have a child that you call names all the time. I just I call them innocent ones, but he gets a, it's a joke. Yeah. And you know when it's serious, I I dial it. I don't do that. I'm like no, this is that yeah. was a joke. This is the real thing. But you know these are this is the kind of relationship I have with people. So I wouldn't want people telling these maudlin stories about me because I don't think that would be the reflection of my relationship with a lot of people. Mm. Whereas um, for you, I think you would want people to tell all these loving, touching stories and like give these great speeches about how amazing you are. Well, yes, that is true. <laughs> Beautiful poetic speeches. Yeah, that feels very like you. The theme. <laughs> what, what would your theme be? I don't Black. know. No. <laughs> Like, you know, with it, with the eulogies I've given, I generally do have a theme. Mm, yeah, that's the writer in you. Yeah. So, like, with my grandfather, the theme was the special relationships he has with his grandchildren. Mm. And all the unique, different special relationships he had with his grandchildren. 
Whereas with my nan, my theme was sort of the almost magical, like, supernaturalness of her. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I have I have some thoughts about what my future eulogies that I might give. Yep. And my themes, I don't, I want to, don't want to give them away. I want people to be surprised <laughs> by my beautiful themes. You know they'll be dead, right? <laughs> No, no, like the other people. <laughs> like, unless everyone I know dies at the same time. And I'm just like Awkward. running from funeral to funeral giving eulogies. Uh, yeah. I uh, I actually haven't had the conversation with my parents. I don't know what their wishes would be. I can assume. You did a living will conversation with your parents. Like a, probably a more medical one, didn't you? Yeah. It was much more like, you know, DNR kind of stuff. Yeah. Which is, whereas I've had more the um, conversations about... Um, spreading ashes and like eulogies and things. Yeah. I think every now and then my mum who loves uh, talking about the idea of people showering her with love um, has every now and then mentioned what she would want done with her ashes. Um, mm-hmm. But it's all been very vague and non-specific. Like, we've never really sat down and actually eked out a plan. What do you think she wants done? Uh, Catholic ceremony mixed in with some, uh, Vietnamese religion, some incense, some white headbands and lots of bowing. This is, I'm I'm basically just replicating my dad's funeral at this point. She She will probably want us to have a spot in our house for the pictures of the dead. Oh yeah. Yeah. She'd want an altar that we would have to, um, you know, bow and worship once a year. Mm -hmm. Um, will I do it? No idea. But you know, that's what she would want. I don't know. I don't know. Like, this is the thing, I... How many generations are you meant to keep at the altar? (laughs) As I've said, I have not had these conversations with my mum. So I don't know. I don't know. She's got uh, three. Because what? It's my dad, her parents, and her grandparents, I think, are are on that altar. I feel like it's four people. No, but one of them has two pictures. No, one of them has both both, both her parents in the one picture. Oh, okay. Yeah. So... Yeah, I don't. I don't know what the expectation is necessarily, mm-hmm. um, but I guess this is this is the thing. I got. I probably do need to talk it out with them. You probably do have to work out what country your stepfather wants to be buried in. Yeah, no. Well, look, if he uh, if he dies before COVID shut down, I don't think I have a choice. And well, actually, admittedly, I could just wait till the borders open and go back to Vietnam. And even then, I wouldn't even know where to take him. If he wants to be cremated, you can probably do that. Like, you can probably have him cremated and just keep him in urn until you have a chance to go to Vietnam. Yeah, I'd, well, I don't think because if I remember correctly, Catholicism doesn't have any particular policy on cremation or not cremation, mm-hmm. as opposed to other religions where there's very explicit rules about how the body's to be buried. Yeah. So, it, yeah, I mean, I think cremation is going to be kind of an automatic. But yeah, whether I spread his ashes back in Vietnam or here, I mean, the, the tricky part is that I don't, I don't talk to him about this kind of stuff. He's a very stoic kind of guy, and so he, um, I don't know where would be the most important place for him. You know, like God forbid, touch wood, if I die anytime soon, my important place is here, like it's home. So I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I think I think when I was eighteen. Do you want me to spread your ashes here and then rent it out? Yes, <laughs> you do that. Well, no, we're in the cherry blossom tree, and they don't need to know that there is dead people under the cherry blossom tree. But like, I I think that I wouldn't like the fact that I had spread your ashes at a place I wasn't living anymore. Yeah, but it's not about you, is it? But you said funerals are for the living. I would be alive, <laughs> and you'll be dead. So. <laughs> Oh, well, hey, you know, you can always come back to the place. You still own the house. That is true. Mm. Uh, I, don't know. I might spread your ashes at my new house. 
with my new husband. <laughs> Quietly. Cool, then I can haunt your new husband forever. Yeah, Excellent. It'll be awesome. <laughs> anyway, so I, I think that the conversation with parents, I think, is very awkward. You, know, you mentioned uh, last time that your aunt, her kids, don't want to talk about death, which mm-hmm. I think is, is short-sighted. Um, you know, the, the the idea of trying to guess what someone wants for the funeral is a really, uh, at this day and age, kind of an avoidable uh, dilemma, really. Yeah, the only, the only other kind of workaround is to put instructions with your will. But even then, to like, to know all the ins and outs. Like, I remember we had, when I f- wrote my first will, which was in my 20s, because I was like, oh, I'm earning money now, I should figure out where all my stuff goes. Mm. I had... Only two requirements. One, my ashes would be scattered in the Blue Mountains because it was a place I remember loving. Yeah. Um, I changed my mind now, but you know. Uh, and the other thing was there were two songs I wanted played at my funeral. One was Goodbye to You by Michelle Branch and the other was I Will Remember You by Sarah McLaughlin. But that was it. And then we had we did our uh, wills again a few mm-hmm. years ago because, you know, we've got kids and yeah. other things to figure out. And even then I couldn't figure it out. Like, I was like, I don't know what you need to know in a funeral. I almost kind of don't care. Like, yeah. just, there's the theme, there's the idea, the details, could not care less. And again, I'll be dead. So I remember in my 20s going, well, I could write a will, but what do I care? Like... Mm. There's no one I need to provide for. I don't care if the money goes to the government or my parents or what. Yeah. Like, you know, just because I have money, like, no one, no one's going to be destitute because, you know, I didn't correctly leave them a house or something. I think I gave my stuff to, like, various friends. <laughs> yeah. And you have a lot of crap because, you know, autism and collecting and all that. Yes, that is true. Mm. So, how would you want to have the conversation of death with the kids? I mean, we've talked about it. Yeah, we've had a lot of conversations, actually. But they were were always opportunistic, weren't they? Like, we never went out of our way to go, Oh, time to talk about death. Well, yeah, I guess, but... I don't know. Yeah, we haven't really gone, Let's have a conversation about death today. It has been when people die, but people do die. Do you remember the first conversation you had with the kids about death? Was that around your grandma? It was, yeah, it was around my nan. Mm. Because they knew her and they couldn't visit her anymore. Mm. Um, they're actually the first conversation I had around death with the kids was actually Roxy Dog. Oh, right. Yes, but I don't know if it had any effect on them. No, because they would have been four, three, three. Yeah, yeah I think they were quite young, like yeah. maybe even two or three. But Matt's always been kind of curious and a bit precocious in that manner. So yeah, but even run. even with my nan, it was about 12 months after she died that he started actually talking about it. Mm. The, yeah, he didn't really show any sign of being distressed about it or anything for like 12 months, which was an interesting... Because I was dropping him off at school and he was like crying. Um, and I explained to his teacher, I'm like, oh, you know... He's sad because my nan died. And she's like, I'm really sorry your nan died. I'm like, well, it was 12 months ago, but thank you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, no, it wasn't. Like, it was grade one and she had died when he was in kindergarten. So it was like 18 months. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I did. I remember feeling a bit awkward because people were saying, oh, I'm really sorry your nan died. I'm like, well, it was a while ago. But he just has had this delayed reaction, which I then found out was not tr- completely unusual for autism. Yeah. So I don't know if he was processing it for eighteen months, or he just had a he just matured to a point where he just suddenly realised how tragic death was. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I do remember talking to them about saying goodbye to Roxy Dog and that we wouldn't see her again. But then also 
showing them situations where they say goodbye to people they would see again, so they wouldn't be confused. Mm. I remember doing that with the music teacher. Yeah. Like, because I think Roxy had died late in her term. So basically, I got the music teacher to help me explain that, you know, after the holidays, they would see her again. Mm. Because I wasn't sure how well, like, how they were processing it or what they understood. Which I think is a very insightful distinction, because I think some people kind of forget that, yeah, using the term saying goodbye or using vague, non-specific terms to an autistic person can have broader ramifications and broader meaning. So I purposely avoided any discussion about sleeping mm, as a metaphor for death. Right. Because I've heard that that can be very distressing if a child misunderstands. Yes. And they think that they're just going to die in the night. Yeah. Um, because they go to sleep, like the dog went to sleep. But the mm. dog didn't wake up. Mm, yeah. yeah, so I did avoid the word sleep. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I just talked about saying goodbye and that we wouldn't see her again. Yeah. I think um, it, it's interesting. Jake is very much um, an atheist. <laughs> very, very much. To the point of being slightly militant about it. And I'm often like, Jake, it's like, I, I get that's what you believe. You don't need to announce it like that. <laughs> Other people can believe what they want to believe. It's fine. Uh, well, we killed his belief by telling him the truth about other things. <laughs> like, what? Well, he said, like, because we told him about, like, the truth about other magical beings. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he's like, well, if they don't exist, <laughs> God doesn't exist. <laughs> yes. Uh, but but lately, um, I've, been, I've been discovering Buddhism. And, like, I think I, I would probably call myself a Buddhist, but I'd be like a... Uh, like a almost like a lapsed Buddhist, like a lapsed Catholic. Like yeah, maybe. I don't know. Let's, let's find out when that, when that comes in a few months. Will I write down Buddhist? Let's let's see how I go. Uh, but I'll be talking to him about different beliefs. So obviously he he knew about the new the the usual kind of Judeo Christian kind of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I talked a bit about reincarnation. Now he's not he doesn't believe that. I'm not sure I believe it either. But you know, it was just kind of an interesting idea because I think. What more than in reincarnation? I guess I wanted to kind of get, give him the idea that death is kind of normal, and it's not that we've never talked about it in that way. We've always yeah. talked about how death is kind of a normal process, but I guess as it's as part of a larger picture of that things kind of come to an end. We also talk about meat with uh, a bit of context about death. What do you mean? Like we we've we've talked a bit about vegetarianism and like the the fact that meat causes the animal to die, whereas an egg or milk doesn't. Oh, yeah, that's right, because we're distinguishing between vegetarianism and veganism. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I think the first time he realised that meat was from dead animals, he decided to be a vegetarian for five minutes till he wanted some bacon. Because <laughs> <laughs> he decided during a breakfast buffet. Yeah. And then, But then he wanted the bacon. So <laughs> he had he stopped being a vegetarian after five minutes and ate some bacon. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, we've always been... We've always tried to be very honest about death, with, but almost kind of normalising. Because I do, I do find the idea of heaven and hell and all that to be, A, judgmental, and B, almost uh, safeguarding against something that I don't necessarily think needs to be safeguarded against. Mm-hmm. Like, it's trying to soften the blow of death. And I just kind of think, well, if we just accept it, and like a, like a fact of everything, and things are going to happen, then, you know, that's I think that's an equally balanced approach without having to make death seem like something you aim for. You know? Yeah. Like, I, I've always thought that, traditionally, a belief in heaven 
Not only this often the blow of death, which was very common. Mm. Like, people... It was v- very common for people to just lose many of their children. Mm. Um, but also, I think, softened the blow of life-sucking for mm. peasants. Which we don't... Like, obviously, there are people whose lives still suck. Mm. But it's not as many. Like, we don't have a society that relies on the majority of people's lives sucking. And being told that it's okay your life sucks because... Once you're dead, you can get something really good. Mm. We don't have that society anymore. So I guess the, the, yeah, the comfort from a belief in heaven has become just about death. Yeah. Although we did have an interesting conversation uh, before your cousin's funeral about whether or not... Actually, no, it was before uh, she had actually died. And we were kind of thinking, would we take the kids to the funeral if we were given the opportunity to do so? Yeah. And I wasn't... I was kind of thinking more practically, like, do we want to subject them to a to a ceremony? Um, but you took a slightly different stance on it. Uh, which was that because it was someone a bit more distant than, like, a grandparent um, or a great-grandparent, it could be a good first funeral. Mm. Whereas someone they sort of knew, they can sort of understand it, but it's not as personal for them as if it was a grandparent or a great-grandparent. Yeah. Because my first funeral was my great-grandmother. Mm. Um, and your first funeral that you can remember was your dad. Yeah. So very personal funerals. Yeah. I I, I think, I, like, my grandparents definitely died before my dad died. So I, I do know that happened, but I just, I don't have any memory of it. But Okay. It might just be that, yeah, my, my dad's funeral was just particularly traumatic for obvious yeah. reasons, which is why the first thing I remember. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I think from a parenting perspective, your idea of easing them into it, giving them opportunities to sort of be part of the grieving process without necessarily having to suffer a really significant loss was really quite, quite good. Now, not everyone has that opportunity, which one would argue is a blessing, but I think that you got to think about these sorts of things with your kids sometimes. Or, or again, you just accept it. You just kind of yeah. go, you know what, you'll, you'll deal with death the way the rest of us deal with death, and it'll just be kind of sudden and happen, and you'll deal when you deal. Yeah. Uh, but for an autistic kid, that's, that could be quite a significant experience. So if you yes. can avoid it, you try to avoid it. Um, I think when it comes to autistic kids, like, I want to say, if you're at a funeral with an autistic kid, not your autistic kid, if they do something weird or say something weird, their parents are probably mortified. <laughs> mm. um, but it doesn't mean they're bad kids. Like, I remember um, being told, like, I think it's like a... She, she was in her early 20s, but she had, like, she was lower functioning than the boys. And she went to a funeral and she's like, is the person's head in there? Hmm. Because she's just trying to understand. Like, she wasn't malicious. Yeah. So I just wanted to finish off by saying, if you are at a funeral and there is an autistic child and they say something weird, just pretend they didn't. Honestly, I don't think it should matter that they're a child. I think you have... Oh, yeah, or even an autistic person. Yeah, if someone says something odd or something, asks us a question that doesn't really make sense to you, kind of respect the fact that they are processing things and trying to figure things out in their own way. They're not trying to be offensive. And again, as we've been saying throughout this episode, there isn't one way to grieve. Yeah. So, so you know, don't regulate other people's behaviours at a funeral because you don't know what they're thinking. You don't know how they're feeling. You don't know what they're doing to try and get through it. Yeah. So just, yeah, just... And that's why, I don't know, that's why I still feel like ultimately a, a sort of a group mourning feels 
more complicated than it needs to be, you know? I mean, sure, if you want to share your grief and, and feel t- as part of community, that's all well and good. But, yeah, for me, I'm just... My grief is very personal. And that's why I, I, I personally don't... I don't see a value in funerals. Yeah, and I... Like, yeah, I, th- I think that, that way, that's where it comes to respecting... Like, I respect the fact that funerals work for me and they don't work for you. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, like, I, I guess I just always want to throw it in extra, like, be nice to autistic kids. Like, whenever someone goes, oh, you know, this kid was running around a restaurant or something. Uh, yeah. I'm just like, you don't know. You yeah. don't know what the parents are going through. You don't know if this is, like, they're trying to teach their kid how to react in a restaurant as not going well. Like, I know it's probably inconvenient for you, but sometimes these families are going through so much you don't understand. Mm. So that's why I kind of throw that in there. And on that note, thanks for listening. Uh, be sure to check out our older episodes. You can find them on the ACAST website at acast.com. Just search The Atypical Rainbow. And don't forget to follow us uh, on Instagram and Facebook at The Atypical Rainbow for updates and interesting news articles we may find. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this two-parter on death and be sure to check out new episodes. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you next time.